The Money Show. The Africa Business Report. Our Africa Business Report is on a Tuesday night, every Tuesday night, and we have a host of people who um, bring it to us, and uh, we give them a little break in between, but uh, tonight it is the turn of Ronak Kapoldis. Ronak is Director and Africa Analyst at Signal Risk for the Africa Business Focus. It's brought to you by SAA, the ones who fly SAA's growing route network, now flying to Blantyre, Lilongwe, Vic Falls, and Windhoek. Let us get the uh, very necessary Nigeria story out of the way. <laughs> I've said to you before, I think we, we talk about Nigeria elections all the time. They're either about to have one, have had one, or in between elections, but they've just had one. Um, and, um, you know, how, how things panned out. Yeah, so um, the expected winner, Bola Tinubu, actually won. Um, but, of course, the opposition in Nigeria, Ajiku Abubakar and Peter Obi, have gone to the courts uh, because they don't think that uh, the result is accurate. They uh, cite irregularities in the process and voter fraud, and they're accusing the Electoral Commission of tampering with the results to guarantee a victory for Tinubu and the ruling party. So the question here is, do they have a case? Um, it is the first time in Nigeria that biometrics are used in this election, uh, and the two technologies that um, have fallen under the microscope over here, so BVAS, the bimodal voter accreditation system, and IREV, which is the results viewing portal. Um, and because there were issues with the technologies and technical issues with this, uh, there are questions regarding the credibility of these devices and the data. So what the opposition is saying over here is that the, the um, data was manipulated and that because the uploading onto the results viewing platform failed, that the results were tampered with, um, but at Signal Risk, we don't think that they've really got a case. The burden of proof is pretty high, and they've got to show that it's materially altered the result. In addition, there's kind of no precedent for courts overruling the results. You know, pretty much all elections in Nigeria are contested by the courts, but not overturned. In addition, you know, the courts have got 100 days to make this ruling, so there's a, the potential that they'll still be deliberating after Tinubu is inaugurated, and it will really take some some bravery to, to um, overrule uh, a sitting president. And then the simple pragmatic reason, the Electoral Commission does not have money to conduct another election. So, um, you know, at Signal Risk, we don't think that um, the result will be overturned, but there's still a bit of uncertainty um, to watch. We're watching the court ruling. We're watching to see what the contours of the administration are going to be like. And then, of course, all attention shifts to the economy. At what point do we start worrying, we stop worrying about the contestation, a bit like South Africa, I suppose? At what point do we start looking at actually improving Nigeria for Nigerians and for the benefit of the African continent, which is a slip sliding away in a, in a race against changing demographics and uh, Nigeria, the, the biggest economy, Nigeria, really populous, Nigeria, really critical, not only um, in, uh, in West Africa, but of course for the entire uh, African continent. It's an absolutely pivotal place. And it just feels we, we spend so much time contesting elections and fighting about the politics, a bit like here, um, we, we, we don't get involved in doing the work. Yeah, I mean, you know, Bruce, for, for Africa to be successful, you need your big economy to, to fire and to function. And, you know, for the better part of the last decade, both South Africa and Nigeria have been sleepwalking through crisis. So the hope is that with a new administration now, there's a bit of urgency in policy making, there's a bit of new impetus, there's a bit of pragmatism, uh, and you know that, that they can really kick on and start to assert 
Nigeria can start to assert itself on a global stage, tap into its economic potential. But, you know, the, the starting point is to build confidence, and you can only do that with sensible policymaking and consistent communication. Yeah. What's happening in Tunisia doesn't seem to be, uh, things don't seem to be rosy there. Yeah, so uh, pretty concerning. There's a racism row um, over there, but the, the president has kind of um, ordered urgent measures against black African migrants over what he said is a criminal plot to change Tunisia's demographic makeup. So extremely xenophobic comments, and he's effectively trying to find a scapegoat for the country's problems, not rooted in any fact. And what we've seen is that following this very racist dog whistle, uh, there have been you know, racial discrimination and racial profiling against black Africans in Tunisia, the detaining of undocumented uh, folks from, from across other parts of the continent, acts of mob violence. Um, so very concerning. Um, and, you know, trying to understand the rationale for this, um, also there's no immediate reason apart from the fact that the Tunisian economy uh, is not doing well highest inflation rate since 1991, cost of living is rising. So it may, may be an attempt to deflect pressure and to boost popularity. You know, this, this message will probably resonate in certain parts of society. Um, but importantly, there's been, there's been a backlash. Um, and I think international organizations like the World Bank have said that they are temporarily suspending talks with Tunisia over future engagements, um, which I think is a warning sign to the administration that there will be consequences for this kind of behavior. Uh, the big question is whether it's going to affect the IMF loan, which is critical to the Tunisian economy. There's, there's already a staff level agreement in place, um, but because of the optics of this and because um, of this, this racism, the IMF may kind of uh, put a pause to that uh, because of the, the political um, factors at play over here. So, I mean... I think what we're going to see is that the president will dial back and soften this position. Um, international and financial pressure will, will come to bear. But, you know, more than a decade after the Arab Spring, the political and economic environment in Tunisia is not looking great. No. It's such, it's so disappointing. It really is. What's less disappointing, however, if we pop across the continent to Ethiopia, Things seem to be calming down a little bit there. Dreadful civil war, of course, dreadful fighting in one of the most promising economies uh, on the African continent. It really has been a, a dreadful drag on reform, but we seem to be making a, a return there. Yeah, so uh, people are excited about this. You remember when Abiy Ahmed came to power in 2018, he pushed a strong privatization and reform agenda but that failed to materialize for a host of factors. You know, the conflict in the Tigray region, like you mentioned, uh, Chinese insularity, the conflict between Russia and Ukraine, COVID, uh, lots of internal and external factors. But um, the finance ministry announced last month that they were planning to sell a 45% stake in uh, the telecom style stake, which is GPO Telecom. Um, and this has created a lot of excitement amongst investors. You know, it's a country of 100 million people, the largest economy in East Africa, and they're now looking to raise approximately $675 million. Um, telecoms is a key strategic sector, so this is, this is very welcome. And I think the, the timing is, is quite interesting for a few reasons. So uh, the first is that Ethiopia's economy has not been doing well, and the external position is is really grim. Um, you know, the foreign reserves are very low. 
they've got less than one month of, of import cover, um, and they've got debt payments due. So, you know, they've really got to find a way of, 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 of finding money, and this is, this is an obvious, obvious way. The second thing is that they're reaping the rewards of this peace dividend and improved sentiment, um, and I think that's reflected in Ethiopia's eurobonds, which are amongst the most improved uh, across the continent this year. And then, you know, geopolitically, it's a, it's a really strategic and important place, you know, because of its strategic location in the Horn of Africa. Uh, we've seen delegations from Europe, China, the UK, the US, all trying to, to, to kind of get in there and weaken their ties. Uh, so its stock is high geopolitically, and it's trying to maximize that. So, you know, if we kind of zoom out a little bit, I think deregulation and privatization is back on the agenda. Um, you know, the banking sector is thinking, is it our turn next? But I think, you know, the, the changes will be slow and steady rather than a big bang, but definitely a positive story. Uh, and finally, um, is Kenya making the right moves in terms of foreign policy? It's definitely a shift. Um, you know, I think under the Uhuru Kenyatta administration, Kenya was, was very much um, aligned with China. China was the biggest bilateral creditor, the largest trading partner, but under the Ruta administration, we're starting to see signs of a, a tilt towards the West rather than, than the, the kind of Eastern orientation of the Kenyatta regime. And I think that was evidenced by Jill Biden's visit um, uh, a couple of weeks ago, which was quite symbolic, but I think it, it demonstrated two things. So um, just before that visit, uh, William Ruto had signed um, the U.S.-Kenya Strategic Trade and Investment Partnership, which is meant to replace AGOA. Kenya is the country that um, the U.S. has chosen to pioneer this, and then it's going to roll it out to other African states. Um, and, you know, this is an agreement aimed to kind of cater to the new geopolitical realities and to be more, more holistic. So that was the first kind of big symbolic step. And then the second one is, is the fact that, um, you know, if you look at the rhetoric from Ruto, if you look at the, the uh, voting on the position uh, on the, the Ukraine war, uh, Kenya is very much aligned with, with the Western and the U.S. worldview. And the president and his deputy have had around 20 official engagements with U.S. policymakers, which is kind of four times uh, more than those that they've held with China since he's come to power last September. So I think we're definitely starting to see a shift over here. The question will be, can Kenya exploit this to its own strategic advantage rather than being exploited by either the U.S. or China and avoiding a kind of Cold War 2.0 type of scenario? Director and Africa analyst at Signal Risk, Ronak Kapoldis on the line to us from London this evening.